Welcome to the Veterinary Pulse podcast. My name is Jordan Benchia. I'm the executive director of the VIN Foundation. Veterinary Pulse is the heartbeat of the profession. Join us as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics from student debt to mental health and share stories. Stories connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible through individual donors like yourself and our technology partnership with VIN, the Veterinary Information Network. Thank you for being here. This episode, VIN Foundation board member, Dr. Matt Holland is having a conversation with Ross veterinary student, Jonathan Dumas. Listen in as they discuss Jonathan's unique path to veterinary school, diversity in the profession, and how mental health plays a role. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. Thank you for listening. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. How's it going, Matt? Oh, it's going pretty well over here. I'm in uh, just outside Chicago, Illinois. Where are you? I'm actually in Montgomery, Alabama this evening. And how did you, how did you get there? <laughs> I actually drove overnight. Um, so I have a young sister, my youngest sister, um, who is getting ready to start her uh, junior year of college. Um, and so I, together with my mom, we <laughs> got in the car and just kind of drove up in the middle of the night to drop her off. And move oh, okay. Okay. And uh, when are you headed back to Ross? Um, so I will be headed back to the island in March, March 7th specifically. Um, so we'll be doing the first couple of months um, virtually and online. And then we'll transition back to the island, followed by a 14-day quarantine. Then assuming we uh, pass or receive uh, negative COVID tests, at day zero, day seven, and then day 14, um, we can return um, to the normal population on island and continue with our regular schedule laboratories and classes. Okay, and um, the, the listeners out there can see your bio and the episode notes, but um, would you tell me how, how you got to Ross and uh, your story of how you became interested in veterinary school in the first place? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, so my name is Jonathan Dumas, and I am a fifth semester uh, student at Ross University School of Veterinary Medicine in the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis. I am the current SAVMA and SGA president of Ross, uh, and I got to Ross um, because I just heard about the institution from a few peers of mine who I went to high school and undergraduate with. Uh, so with respect to my interest in veterinary medicine, um, I was involved in the National FFA organization, which folks, most folks know as uh, the Future Farmers of America. I was also involved in 4-H, uh, which is a similar uh, organization, and I went to a vocational high school that had an agri-science academy. Um, and within the agri-science academy, um, I took up the veterinary assisting track. So those three things combined um, 
really helped me hone in on my interest uh, with respect to animal health and welfare. But I've just always had a passion for working with animals, um, just like a lot of other people who are interested in going to veterinary school or have thought about veterinary school are are in veterinary school. Uh, I think the difference is though, is that you know having a passion for working with animals um, really does not translate into a uh, veterinary degree. Um, there are a lot of nuances um, uh, and things with respect to the veterinary curriculum specifically um, that are a lot different than one might assume. Um, but it, it, it was, you know, that initial interest and that initial passion for working with animals uh, that led me to uh, go to veterinary school. Um, so I can say, you know, after high school, I went to the University of Florida, where I majored in animal science, um, and my track was specifically um, large animals, uh, beef cattle. Uh, then after undergrad, I attended the Pennsylvania State University for graduate school, uh, where I received a dual master's in international agriculture and development and agriculture and extension education. Um, and my thesis research um, was actually on the factors that influence Black and Latino high school students to pursue careers in agriculture. Uh, following graduation, uh, I had a job with the uh, United States Department of Agriculture, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, Veterinary Services as a program analyst. Um, and so I knew I always wanted to go to vet school. I didn't quite follow the normal trajectory, um, which a lot of students do, um, which means that, you know, I'll go to veterinary school uh, after undergrad, um, considering that I went on to grad school and went on to work for some time. But I will say that um, it was actually working for USDA that sort of re-inspired me um, and, and really cultivated uh, the love that I have for the field, um, specifically the turning point um, was learning about um, the effects of avian influenza um, that happened within the North America. Uh, and I really had a hands-on experience um, just with respect to controlling the situation because as a lot of people may or may not know, uh, USDA is really tasked with regulating and um, enforcing um, a lot of the programs that we have centered around animal health, welfare, and um, wellness. Um, and so I essentially got to plan a international conference um, on, on avian influenza. And I will tell you that I was inspired uh, by being in a room of pretty much just about all of the countries in the world um, having representative, if not their chief veterinary um, officers, um, but their designees and really just talking about um, how to mitigate um, avian influenza um, best practices and really just taking a world approach to solving a problem that was going on locally. Um, so it was at that point that I was just like, okay, you know, this is really something that I want to do. Um, and so I pursued it. I had to finish up some of my prerequisite coursework. So I was doing that in conjunction um, with working. Of course, I had to take the GRE. Um, and so my goal was to start veterinary school uh, the fall of 2019. And so I realized that I needed to apply the fall of 2018. Um, and so that's exactly what I did. Um, and I ended up at Ross. 
because I really enjoyed the curriculum with respect to um, the fact that it is what we call an accelerated program where you finish in um, a little less than half the time. So we go to school uh, three years. Um, so we're in school year round, uh, three semesters a year. Um, so you have two years of preclinical work and then a year of clinics. Um, and then the other part or aspect of that was that um, it, the school is located in a different country. Um, and so that resonated with me considering the fact that I um, am a first generation American. Um, both of my parents were born in Haiti. Um, so being able to go somewhere um, and learn, um, but also being enriched um, in a culture and learn a new set of customs um, and values and norms really resonated with me. Um, and so I think it's awesome to be in a place where I can receive all of that, limit the, my distractions and pursue something that I love and am passionate about. Wow. Yeah, that is quite the story, um, especially the planning an international conference where nearly every single country is represented. Uh, that sounds like a once in a lifetime experience. Um, you and I have the non-traditional path to vet school in common. We also have USDA in common, um, except I worked for USDA after vet school and you did before. But um, that is, that is just such a cool path to school. And so um, you, you spoke to this a little bit, but I'm curious, um, how are your previous career experience impacted your, not only your vet school experience, but um, what you think you might wanna do after veterinary school? Um, so the previous career experience, um, really gave me an opportunity to witness and explore what was already out there without being a veterinarian. Um, so one of the things that I didn't point out is that I actually spent um, about four years um, in the field as an animal health technician. Um, and essentially I was the right hand and assistant to uh, all of the veterinary medical officers uh, within uh, the field. Um, for USDA. Okay. Um, so some of the activities that they normally engage in um, are, you know, usually centered around uh, regulating and enforcing a lot of the programs that the federal government has um, in partnership with a lot of producers and entities. Um, so visiting um, processing plants, um, going to livestock markets, um, you know, swabbing birds, um, and other poultry for Newcastle disease, um, doing, you know, tuberculosis testing and readings, bleeding tau hell heads for brucellosis and, and, and all these other things. Um, so it was really a way to sort of see and experience uh, what was out there with respect um, to the federal government, understanding that federal veterinarians actually don't practice. Um, so that was really interesting and cool, especially considering the experiences that I've had in, in my education. Um, so it really just kind of allowed me to understand, uh, you know, what is it that I enjoy about this perspective field and this field that I want to get into and, and what is it that I don't enjoy and what is it that I don't like. Um, so I kind of went into vet school already understanding that um, and having a working knowledge of that. I think the other aspect of you know, working before going to veterinary school that I found um, interesting um, was the fact that there are a lot of things that are discussed um, 
within the curriculum that I have experienced or have heard about or have worked on. Um, you know, when you take your classes on, you know, zoonotic diseases, when you take classes on epidemiology and, 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 and you know, pathology and bacteriology and things of that, of that sort, these are things that I've seen and experienced or have had hands in, um, understanding uh, the organizations, means that are, you know, responsible for, for, you know, vaccine distribution and vaccine protocol and, and all of those things. Um, so it gave me a world world example that was applicable that I understood. Uh, and so there was an interest there for me. Um, so, you know, that kind of drew me into the curriculum and, and, and caught my attention and made it, made me want to learn more about something that I already knew about. And I could also contribute to the conversation. I could contribute to the discussion. Um, and I can have conversations and discussions with my peers about my experiences, um, and so it was kind of the best of both worlds, if you will, um, to have had those experiences and, and know what the professor is talking about and, and be able to contribute to the conversation and discussion um, and then further build on my expertise and, and skill set. Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that um, you were more informed as a pre-veterinary student than uh, the average pre-vet student. Yes, that was a, a great way to say it. <laughs> And another thing it sounds like you're informed about than uh, most people in our profession, um, veterinarians and pre-vet students alike, is diversity. So you talked about your work in getting Black and Latinx people into agriculture. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you did that and why it was important to you? I most certainly can. I, I can tell you um, where it started and, and, and um, sort of elaborate um, on that. Uh, so my thesis research was actually influenced by the fact that uh, I went to vocational high school, um, was enrolled in the Agri Science Academy, took up the veterinary assisting track. Uh, majority of the students in my high school were either Black or Latino. Um, our Caucasian counterparts were traditionally the minority. Uh, in my graduating class of about 150 students that were actually in the Agri-Science Academy, uh, there was only one or two Caucasian students. Um, and so one of the things that I found disturbing was the fact that out of about 150 students uh, of my graduating class, I am probably the only one that went on to pursue um, some sort of formal education um, or employment within the field of veterinary medicine. Um, and then just considering the fact that this program uh, was something that we were immersed in for four years. Um, you know, we were heavily involved in 4-H and FFA and other ag-related organizations. Uh, we attended a lot of conferences and trainings. Uh, we participated um, in a lot of competitions centered around our supervised agriculture experience projects. And then we also graduated high school with certifications as veterinary assistants. So for the life of me, I was just really puzzled and confused as to why my classmates and peers didn't want to pursue anything um, with respect to veterinary medicine. Yeah. Um, you know, in completing the research, I found out that a lot of it is historical. So there is a historical and familial context um, and what that means essentially is that so majority of 
the population um, in Miami, especially the area that I grew up in, um, a, a lot of those students um, are either immigrants themselves or you know, immigrated from another country or they are first generation Americans. Um, and so there is this historical and familial context uh, with respect to veterinary medicine and agriculture, which essentially means that um, I'm gonna be a farmer. And okay. for whatever reason, um, you know, that context does not um, translate into something that is lucrative. Um, for the student or for their families. Um, and so they're oftentimes advised against pursuing a career in agriculture. Um, and so going on to undergrad um, and majoring in animal science, uh, I was literally the only black student in all of my animal science related classes. Um, and that did not change once I got to graduate school. Um, and so, you know, that was something that I, you know, consistently thought about um, and had questions about. Um, and I will say, you know, I've done some recruitment work um, with USDA. I'm working with them at a number of the conferences. I'm just trying to recruit uh, minority students um, into professions um, that they otherwise wouldn't have gone into. Um, but what it boils down to for me personally is the fact that, um, you know, as I, as I look at a veterinary school, a lot of the, the students um, within, you know, my respective class, I'm a lot of my peers who are in semesters either um, above me or below me uh, typically come from rural areas. And it seems that a lot of that recruitment that goes into recruiting students for not just veterinary school, um, but for, you know, pre-vet pre school and, and animal science related degrees, agriculture related degrees, a lot of that emphasis is spent on recruiting students from rural areas. Um, and typically in those areas, you have a homogeneous population, um, which is predominantly white. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's going to have to happen to make the shift is we are going to have to change how we recruit students. We also have to take into account the historical and familial context um, associated with how students um, and their parents associate uh, these degrees and these job opportunities in order to really sort of make some changes with respect um, to improving our, our levels of diversity within agriculture, within veterinary medicine, um, within veterinary school and education. And, and so, I, I mean, it feels like, it feels like this conversation or a variation of this conversation comes up a lot. And I'm curious what your definition of di diversity is. So when I think of diversity, um, I actually really think to a time and point in my life when I didn't realize that I was black. Um, uh, and this time and point in my life was really, really prevalent um, because, you know, people always say that, oh, I don't see color or co I'm colorblind or color 
doesn't exist, um, but to truly grow up in a place um, where everyone is celebrated racially, um, where everyone is celebrated ethnically, and where everyone is celebrated culturally, uh, and there are no true or unique differences um, is what I consider diversity. Um, and diversity can mean a number of different things for people, uh, for different people. But for me, I think mm -hmm. of diversity as a place that exists that is culturally, ethnically, and racially rich. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I revert back to that uh, because you know, I, I've seen pictures of myself celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month and, you know, celebrating Hanukkah um, and, and learning and doing all of these things and never realizing that I was Black or, or realizing that, oh, me as a Haitian American man, like, this is not my culture or there are stark differences in the color of my skin. I just look like a happy little black boy um, who's just excited um, to be a part of whatever activity and not being hindered or influenced by any outside forces. Yeah. And then, and then you mentioned earlier how the profession um, has some room for improvement in this area. And, um, you know, I know it's one of the whitest professions, like uh, the percentage of Americans in the U.S. that's white is 60%, and the percentage of veterinarians in the U.S. that are white is well over 90%. Um, so what are some, like, what are some things that you think schools and the profession at large, and, and not even, uh, yeah, I mean, like organizations within the profession, um, you know, Vin, for example, what are things that these different um, people who have seats at the table, what what can they do? Um, so I think my first thing is that they are going to have to stop treating diversity initiatives as a job. I think that's the first thing. Um, I think they have to really truly immerse uh, themselves in their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Um, if they are not personally passionate about it, then they need to select people um, who are truly passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I think that's, that's really the first thing because one of the, the things that I, I have found out or experienced is that um, a lot of people do things to check boxes and kind of how it works is that, okay, I checked that box, time to move on. And that's kind of how I feel uh, diversity is, is being treated within the field of veterinary medicine. Um, and, you know, it's more to it than just checking a box. And I, I'll give you an example. Um, I will say that right now, um, you know, considering everything that is going on, the national conversation centered around the importance of Black Lives Matter, uh, I will say that a lot of institutions um, are you know, really looking at how they can increase student enrollment for minority populations, uh, Black students specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is so much more to increasing your minority enrollment than just admitting more Black students. Um, so not too long ago, I just shared with you that I um, am in Montgomery, Alabama, 
um, and here to drop off my youngest sister um, to start or continue her collegiate degree. Um, And so one of the things that I tell my peers all the time is that I don't have the luxury of being a full-time veterinary student. Um, I grew up as the eldest and a single parent household and growing up as the eldest in a single parent household, I took on a great deal of responsibility at a very, very young age, at 12 years old to be exact. Um, so I am a veterinary student. Um, I am a part-time parent to my two younger sisters. Um, I also contribute uh, to the household um, because uh, my mom needs that help. Um, for lack of better words. And so having all of that in mind, I am going to need a different set of resources and I am going to need support. And support for students of color looks totally different um, than, you know, our Caucasian counterparts that come from, you know, homogeneous uh communities, areas um, that, you know, these institutions routinely um, and have historically recruited students from. Yeah, Um, I came from one of those areas. Right. Um, And so, you know, when I say support, um, some of that is financial support. Um, Some of that is resources, understanding uh, the differences and how we are prepared and you know, readiness and academic rigor, um, that is a part of it. Um, Support um, means, hey, this is something that I've never done before. I'm a first-generation college student. My mom didn't go to college. My mom wasn't born in this country. Um, You know, my mom came to the U.S. when she was 14. Um, She finished high school, got a job, had me and my sisters, and just kind of have made it work. And so, you know, being a first-generation college student, also carrying the burden of being the oldest and having a great deal of responsibility and being the first in my immediate family to go to college, that within itself was a process and an experience. And um, from filling out FAFSA forms and applying to college, like that was something that I had to figure out for myself. Um, And so not having resources in terms of support um, you know, that means a lot. And so for a lot of us, considering the fact that, you know, this is something that we're going into blindly, um, not really knowing anyone or, or having anyone that could advise us support also, you know, means having mentors. Um, the other part of that is having a safe space to where we can talk about a lot of the issues that we face, um, whether they are mental, physical, and emotional. Um, and so, you know, I hope that for a lot of institutions that have made it their priority to recruit and admit more students of color also understand um, the fact that there's a great deal of support that goes with that. Um, but also it's appeal, you know, what does your current student population look like? Why would I, as a student of color, want to attend your institution? What is it about your institution that will benefit me specifically? Um, and, and how do you market your institution? 
Um, what are your current diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives? How do you currently support the students that you already have on campus? Um, can you sort of provide me with a long-term and short-term plan of, of how you truly attack and identify issues that have come up um, with respect to racism and sexism and xenophobia um, and all of those things. Well, how, how diverse is your staff and your faculty? You know, do you have professors that actually look like me? Um, so, you know, you know, there is support, there is, there is appeal. Um, and then there is the recruitment aspect of it. Um, and, you know, it's going to take them to realize and understand that, you know, there are parts of the country that we need to visit and go to. Everyone who wants to go to veterinary school does not live in a rural area. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it, it's interesting because if you, if you think about the landscape and, and how a lot of these institutions are designed specifically when we talk about our um, 1860, 1890 land-grant institutions, those of them which typically have the associated uh, veterinary colleges, a lot of them are in rural areas. So why would I, um, as a student of color from Miami, Florida, want to move to Gainesville to go to veterinary school. Um, what's in it for me? Um, and what does that look like? You know, that, that changes my life, um, considering the fact, you know, again, I'm a first generation college student, uh, first generation American. Um, how does that play into my, my, my development and, and my progress? Um, and so I think we've got to step away from, we need to increase numbers and really um, change the mindset and our focus and say, okay, yes, I understand we need to increase numbers, but how do we support these students to ensure that they are truly successful because they're going through and dealing with things that we absolutely have no working knowledge about? Yeah, so I, I, am hope, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, but like imagine yourself back when you were a pre-vet student, what is something that uh, would make a school, a vet school more attractive? And what is something that might make a vet school less attractive? Um, I, can, I can tell you right now, having faculty and staff members of color is something that would make an institution attractive. Um, for me personally, growing up, um, considering that I've always had an interest in veterinary medicine, um, my involvement and my work experiences, I didn't meet a black veterinarian until I was 21 years old. Mm. Um, and so for someone who has an interest in a specific area or field, someone who's passionate about something. Sometimes it's really hard to imagine yourself in that space if you can't physically see someone who looks like you. Um, and so what that does for me, um, specifically considering you know, my life circumstances, is that it lets me know that this is possible. This is something that I can do, it's attainable, 
because I visually see someone who looks like me. Um, I visually see someone who I can identify myself with. I visually see someone that I know who has some of the same, you know, experiences as myself in this position. Um, and it's sort of a door opener. It's sort of a aha moment. Um, and then beyond that, it says to me, not only is this someone who can do it, who I, I see myself in, um, but then here's an opportunity for me to form a relationship without having to carry the burden of telling someone my whole life story. Like this is someone who can understand me without me having to divulge so much, without me having to share so much, with, without me having to say so much about myself uh, because nine times out of 10, they've had a similar experience. Uh, and that is so important um, with respect to the curriculum um, and how we approach it. Uh, because again, you know, when I don't have any working knowledge, um, with, when I only have, you know, my experiences and the things that I've done, um, sometimes you need that little push, you need that little bit of assistance, you need that help um, for someone who, who can show you things as, as you know, as, as simple and as basic as study habits and study tools and Navli prep. Um, because these are all things that personally I didn't know about, I didn't have access to, um, and it actually took me failing um, my first anatomy exam. Mm. Um, it, it took me, you know, having case, having conversations with my um, Caucasian peers and, and counterparts about them, you know, preparing for the NAVLI in their first semester of grad school to figure out, oh, like I, I've got this all wrong and messed up and I've really got to change my outlook um, on, you know, how I view veterinary school, but also how I approach the curriculum. And, and since you, you know, if, the day you started paying attention to this uh, is day one until today. Have you seen a change uh, in either direction, either positive or negative, in how um, how welcoming the not only veterinary schools but the profession in general is to um, underrepresented people? Um. <laughs> Oh, you put me on the spot there, Matt. Um, but I'm happy to answer this question. With respect to the profession, I have not seen a change. Um, and how I kind of view what is going on right now is that, oh, like, this is the next big thing to do. This is what's hot at the moment. Um, so let's, let's give it some time. Let's check it off of our list. Let, let's say that that we did it um, so we don't um, receive any backlash. Um, but with respect to Ross University School of Veterinary Medicine, um, I can personally say that I have seen some change. Um, and I only know that um, because I've been a part of the change. I have been a driving force. I have been very, very vocal about my experiences. I have been candid and transparent about 
how things have have made me feel as a not only just a a black student but a black male student um and one of the things that i can definitely say that i am fortunate to have is a listening ear um, from the dean of our school um, from my advisors on SAVMA, but also their compassion and empathy. Um, I will tell you that, you know, when I initially began to have conversations with, uh, you know, faculty and staff at Ross um, about a lot of the things that were going on locally in response to what transpired um, with the whole George Floyd incident, I was very angry. I was, I was very upset. Um, to see things happen to a person that looks like you and for it to be glossed over, um, for it to take institutions weeks to respond um, and recognize the event, it makes you feel like less of a human. Um, and, and so, you know, channeling this anger because this is something that has been going on for a while and now all of a sudden, you know, people want to respond, people want to do the right thing, um, people want, want to change their, their, their course of action. Um, it, it made me feel a little bit of a ways and, um, you know, the tone of my messages was not the most positive and I'll be honest with you. Mm. Um, but I, I, I really thank them for empathizing and being compassionate and understanding that, you know, hey, I have a student who is, is reacting um, not to what he is seeing and, and witnessing, um, but things that have been very, very prevalent towards members in his community for a very long time. And he has a right to be upset. He, he has a right to be angry. He has a right uh, to exhibit these feelings. And, you know, I am going to give him some time to express himself, um, but also understand that there is some work to be done um, and do, do my best to, to hear him and to understand um, and really make some legway on, on changes and differences. And the reality is, Matt, is that it's not gonna happen overnight. Um, and, and that is why I get frustrated um, with the profession as a whole. That is why I, I get frustrated um, with, you know, a lot of leaders within the veterinary community, um, because like I said, it's kind of like the hot thing to do. And, and, and to me, I just kind of see it as people wanting to check something off a list. But this is not just something that you check off the list, um, because the reality is, is that the veterinary profession has struggled <laughs> with diversity, equity and inclusion for a very very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, numbers don't lie. <laughs> and to me, I think it's just really, really interesting that um, with respect to um, Black students, like, nothing has changed, you know, with respect to Black veterinarians. Like, Black veterinarians only make up 2.1% of the entire profession. And it's been that way for a very very long time. Um, so when you think about the historical context of a lot of these issues centered around diversity, equity, and inclusion, we have to understand that it is going 
to take some work um, and that we are really going to need people who are truly invested in doing them work and that it's far less about just recruiting and accepting black students, but also giving them the tools and the resources that they need in order to be successful. So earlier you mentioned um, needing resources in areas like physical health and mental health. Um, do you think there's a connection between the imbalance in our profession when it comes to um, white veterinarians and minority veterinarians and mental health, um, specifically the mental health of minority veterinarians? Yeah, so I definitely do think there is a correlation. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I will say that veterinary school is the hardest thing that I've ever done in life. And I've done a lot of hard things, but, but veterinary school is definitely the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, and I think, you know, one of the stark differences between myself and a lot of my Caucasian peers and counterparts um, is the fact that for some of them, um, they have mentors, they have resources, you know, someone in their family is a veterinarian, if not um, their parents. So they have someone that they can talk to or someone who, who can, you know, shed some light on some of the difficulties that they may be having with respect to their, their, their studying. Um, there, there's also someone that probably could, you know, really answer the question for them or, or assist them with understanding the problem or the chief complaint. Um, and I think sometimes that is different for uh, myself or uh, students of color um, because a lot of, you know, how we deal with our problems is through trial and error. Um, so it's kind of like, okay, this isn't working. So let me continue to try until I find something that is. Um, so it's, it's a lot easier when you have a direct link or direct connection um, and someone to assist you with solving that problem, understanding that chief complaint uh, with respect to the curriculum and, and veterinary medicine. Um, but you know, a lot of it is honestly just the sheer uh, volume of work um, and information and material that we are expected to master. Um, and so for me, it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I, I've always heard people say that veterinary school is hard and it's hard to get into veterinary school than it is to get into med school. Um, but I never really understood that until I was immersed in the curriculum. Um, and so for me, it kind of caught me off guard um, because it was something that I wasn't prepared for. Um, and it took me some time to adjust to. It took me some time to wrap my head around um, because I really struggled with, uh, for lack of better words, not having a personal life and school um, really being the sole priority. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, it, it still is um, a little bit of a struggle, um, but it's something that I have been able to manage. But I will say, you know, I, I have a lot of peers um, and, and friends and counterparts um, who are burnt out um, and who kind of feel like they've been pushed beyond um, their mental, physical, and emotional capacity. And so how do you move forward and how do you continue when you kind of feel like you're already 
at that breaking point. Um, and as bad as it sounds, you just continue to push yourself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that continuing to push yourself is the most healthiest thing to do. Um, but when you um, consider everything that is currently going on in the world, um, in addition to the pandemic, um, it's just kind of like I've got to, you know, put my head down and, and finish. Um, and, and what does it cost you? Um, sometimes it costs you sleep. Sometimes it costs you a peace of mind. Um, sometimes it costs you your ability to go out for a run. And so it's something that we really need to truly uh, take a look at holistically, especially when you have professors that are, you know, encouraging you, encouraging you to, you know, get a great night uh, sleep <laughs> and, and, yeah. and eat well. And it's just like, do you really think that, you know, getting a good night of sleep and eating well is possible considering the sheer volume of work that I am given to master and understand? Um, And so I think, you know, it has to start with our leaders within the professions. It needs to start, um, you know, with with our leaders at, at our respective institutions to really say, okay, you know, mental, physical, and emotional health is really important to us. And we need to approach it differently. Um, And until the approach is different, I don't think anything will change. Yeah, I was just telling my therapist yesterday that um, probably, well, I don't know, probably, but um, it could have been a good decision for me to, uh, to drop out of vet school in the first semester because I was cutting corners everywhere from diet to exercise to relationships to drinking too much alcohol. And I like, I felt like I had to do all those things just to survive and to get by. And um, if I, if I had taken the time to eat right, exercise, right, keep up my relationships um, use healthier coping mechanisms, then I would not have had time to pass. And, you know, maybe I should have, but and when I say maybe I should have, I mean, maybe I shouldn't have passed. But that, I think, uh, is something that we're both getting to that is underlying not only at Illinois, where I went, or Ross, it, I think it's uh, um, education in our profession everywhere. No, you, you were absolutely right. Um, you know, you are always going to have to give up something. And the greater question is, what will it cost you and whether or not it'll be a temporary or a long-term cost? And it's if the, um, if the cost is self-care, then is it worth it? If the cost is, is, is self-care, um, and, and I hear you when you say, is it worth it? It's probably not. But then <laughs> when you take into account how expensive that school is and um, when students are having these realistic conversations with themselves, they are, you know, midway through. They're literally at the halfway mark. They're literally year two in, um, year three in or, or in clinics. And at this point, it's just like, well, I understand um what it's costed me and I understand what's giving up, but I have already dug a hole for myself. Yeah. Um, And the only way out is to finish. 
I was thinking the same exact thing when, you know, <laughs> if, if the cost of self-care, is it worth it? Well, maybe not, but look our, look how many loans I already took out for this. So I just exactly what you said earlier, like just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Yeah. No, I, I can tell you that, that um, you know, my, my passion for veterinary medicine has evolved. Um, it, it started off, uh, being about, you know, animal health and, and wellness. Um, and it has really, truly evolved to the human, and when I say human, the student aspect of, of the profession and how we train and prepare um, students. Um, and then also looking at the profession holistically and, 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 and job readiness um, and how we make advances socially with respect to a lot of things that are happening on a national level. Um, and I'll be honest with you and say that, you know, that is my motivation right now for finishing um, because I need a lot of people who look like me to understand and know that it's possible. It's attainable. Yeah. It's a doable. Um, I need them to be able to have access to someone who has done it um, because, you know, I want to pour into them and, and, and not just, just pour into, you know, current students of color that are in veterinary school. Um, but I think that um, with respect to recruitment um, and introducing the profession um, to students of color, it needs to start a lot earlier on in life. Um, and so, you know, how do I interact with adolescent youth of color in, in the city communities? And how do I get them and keep their interests uh, within veterinary medicine? And, and what are things that I can expose them to that will prepare them for the academic rigor of the veterinary curriculum? Um, and, and so those are things that, that we need to look at holistically. Um, and, and that is my motivation for finishing, honestly. Um, you know, I, I always believe um, and ensuring that students after me have a far better experience than I did and have had. Um, and that is something that I'm working to. Um, and it's not just students of rocks, it's just students in general. Um, and while I'm passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and assisting uh, students of color, I really do want to be a resource to everyone. Um, because as we just alluded to and discussed, you know, mental, emotional, and physical health is not just something that I face um, as a veterinary student of color. It's something that you, you face and, and dealt with. Um, and, you know, holistically, you know, there are issues that, that we all deal with um, that are closely associated just as much as we deal with issues um, that the other may not know exist. Yeah. Uh, and so that motivation for finishing um, and, you know, if I can be a resource, if, if I can help someone, I'm certainly willing to do it. Um, and, you know, completing, you know, this curriculum makes me the subject matter expert. Um, and so, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to being on the other side. Yeah, well, it. I can say confidently that any 
student or pre-vet student who has access to you uh, will be in good hands. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you, John. Is there any one thing, I mean, maybe I should have asked this at the beginning because maybe people, <laughs> maybe people have turned it off by now, but if you had to leave people with any one thing, what would it be? If I had to leave people with any one thing, um, it is going to sound so cliche, but it, it is so true. Um, I would say that faith without work is dead. Um, and I say faith without work is dead is, is because you can have all of the faith in the world, um, but if you don't apply yourself, you will not be successful. And I will say that I remind myself of, of that saying time and time again, actually on every exam day, um, because it's, it's so easy to give up, Matt. It, it's, it's so easy to say, hey, I've had enough. It's so easy to put a book down. It's so, so easy um, to take a break and, and, and to, 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 to find a distractor um, from your coursework and, and from your studies. But then I say to myself, Jonathan, if you don't apply yourself, you can't be successful. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, maybe folks won't have to wait until the end to hear it. Cause I think that's a really great name for the title of it. So they'll see it right off the bat. <laughs> well, thanks so much well, Matt, for joining it's us. Really been a pleasure yeah. talking with you. And so I look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. All right. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.